Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the survival stories of blood product recipients. If you have ever been a blood donor, you could have been the one to save the life of the guest that we profile each week here on the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Just a quick note that this issue touches on themes of suicide. If this is a trigger for you, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 for crisis support. On this special Christmas Eve episode of the pod, I speak to Australian Paralympic silver medalist swimmer Monique Murphy. This episode is a long one, but we covered so many topics and Monique is just glorious. So on everything from being a Paralympian, an amputee, a disability advocate, an endometriosis sufferer and a blood product recipient, here is my chat with the amazing Monique Murphy. So hello fellow Queenslander and welcome to the Milkshakes for Marley podcast. Um, Our listeners would know that we relocated to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland from Canberra just over a year ago as we needed a local paediatric intensive care unit for Marley. Um, and when I was on an online stalk, doing a bit of a stalk of you for content for today's episode, um, I saw that you previously swam for the Tuggeranong Vikings. Does everyone not have some kind of Canberra connection in their life? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I grew, I grew up in Canberra, so I was there with Vikings for about 11 years. Wow. So were you Canberra born and bred? I was actually born in New Zealand. Um, oh. My parents were working for DFAT at the time. So I'm right. Australian by birth. I cannot even get a New Zealand passport. Uh, and then I was back here in Canberra from 18 months old until just after I turned 18. So right. very much Australian and very much <laughs> grew up in Canberra, close to born and bred, about as close yeah. as you can be. Let's go with it. <laughs> um, and then you moved to Melbourne for uni. Is that how yes. it played out? Yep. And you walked away from swimming for a little while at that point. Is that right? I did. I did. I was, I grew up loving swimming. It very quickly became apparent that's where my talent was. Uh, yeah. I did some Irish dancing and was God awful at it. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I swam all through high school with big, big dreams of wanting to go to an Olympics and win gold and yeah. I think I got a little bit too caught up in the big dreams rather than following the the little steps that you need to sure. uh, take into account to get to mm-hmm. those big dreams. And it was with a lot of regret that I stopped swimming. It was financially draining. I wasn't getting the um, the results to warrant, you know, taking a year off after school just to swim. And I was just feeling a bit of pressure to go to uni, start my life, start a career. And Mm -hmm. uh, when the opportunity to move down to Melbourne, I was accepted into a furniture design course. um, And I thought I need to take this opportunity. And the bottom line was I stopped believing in myself as far as swimming would go. And I left knowing I hadn't given or hadn't reached my full potential. Wow. And I guess you probably just wanted to go and have some of that youth as well that swimming probably wouldn't allow so much you know your early morning starts and training so hard and all of that kind of stuff I guess moving to Melbourne offered the opportunity to go and live and have a bit of freedom in a way that you might not have before absolutely and I did a I did a gap year um, and did a lot of travel so I never watched I've never watched a Paralympics 
on TV. And I know that the London Games were very pivotal for the Paralympic movement, but I was somewhere in Spain at the time and was really trying to distance myself from that swimming world because, like I said, I knew I had more to give and it was, in a way, I had to sort of cope and, yeah, I had to sort of block it out so that I wasn't um, tempted by it because it's, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of hard work, and I think mm. people forget just how it's your time, but how much money it takes. Yeah. There are a lot of athletes or would be athletes out there. There's just a lot of financial barriers for them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I wanted that freedom, and uh, moving down to Melbourne definitely gave me that. Canberra has grown a lot, but it's still it's not quite small small town mentality, but it's not a big city, so you sort no. of know everybody. You You can't go to a shopping centre without running into someone you know. So it was nice to move to Melbourne and just be invisible, really. Find out who you really were. I'm I'm not invisible anymore. (laughs) No, you are not. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what happened the night of your accident, um, just from what you remember? Well, I don't remember anything, so it's a very short answer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. what I do know is I was at a uni event yep. and I remember walking downstairs with one alcoholic drink. I had no more alcohol on me. So that's all I was drinking for the night. Um, I did work at the at the uni village, which is where mm-hmm. the accident happened. So I had no interest in getting drunk. Yep. Yep. Where I, w- I wasn't on shift that night, but yeah, um, a lot of us resident assistants generally didn't drink a lot at the event yeah and my memory blacks out from about six o'clock that night through till a week later when I woke up in hospital uh, I woke up to see my my parents standing over me just saying we love you we love you and all I could think was my parents are divorced they don't live in Melbourne how much trouble am I in <laughs> that they had to come down <laughs> and I just knew something wasn't right. Yeah. I could, it was almost like you do a, a body scan. I knew that my spine was okay because I could I could feel my body. I could feel mm-hmm. the pain um, that it was experiencing. And I could hear and understand my parents. So I knew that my brain was okay. Or as my dad would say, no more brain damage than before. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. Humor gets you through, right? <laughs> humor definitely got us through. Um, so I managed, I still had breathing tubes in me because I'd been on life support for a week and very took a long time. Managed to convey to them um, that I didn't remember. They got me a pen and paper and I thought it was flawless English spelling, but apparently it looked like a bunch of scribbles. Yes. But eventually they picked up that I I couldn't remember Mm -hmm. and that's when they told me that I'd fallen from my fifth floor balcony and I'd landed on the glass roof below. I remember looking down at my legs and wondering why my right foot was bandaged in a point. So normally when your ankle is bandaged it's with your foot a 90 degree angle. I remember thinking why is it bandaged in a point because our brains are very cruel and I could still feel my foot. So it took about two days before I remember um, overhearing the doctors talk about saying the words foot and amputation. 
And that I turned to the nurse, this is in the ICU, and I said, did they cut off my foot? And all the colour in her face just drained. And right then, impeccable timing, my mum and my aunt walked in and the nurse said, I'm so sorry, I thought she knew. And the doctors had told me, yeah. but they'd also said to my parents, she won't remember because mm-hmm. she's just come out of a coma. We will tell her again. And that was sort of my mum's worst nightmare is that she would have to have to tell me. Yeah, um, and she came over and she said that my jaw, which I'd broken, saved my brain and my foot had saved my spine. So in the way that I'd landed, um, my breaking my jaw and I had a laceration to my neck, which was actually the most life-threatening. Um, yeah. And the, bro- the broken foot is what had saved any brain damage or hurting my spine. So I remember in that moment, we obviously stood there and cried. She held Oops. my hand and I just had this moment where I thought I'm going to be okay. Mm. And I think whenever I recall anything to do with those first few days or any of the days I was in hospital, I was never alone. And I was incredibly lucky to have my family drop everything to come and be there for me, which sounds like a no brainer, but you know, there's, there were friends who didn't turn up, you know, it's very easy when you're not in that hospital room to, Mm let it become something that oh we'll get to it later yeah you learn a lot about the people in your life in situations like this the people that open their arms and the people that just look away and some of the people who open their arms were people that I'd only met at uni it was three weeks into the semester that I'd only met for three weeks and they were the ones who came and they're the ones who made the friends I'd had for decades look really bad (laughs) so you were only three weeks into uni when it happened into my second year Oh wow! Very early in the year. Mm-hmm. So having my parents there and my brother was just, I think that feeling that knowing that I was going to be okay was because I knew I wasn't alone. Yeah. I didn't know how I was going to be okay. I didn't know mm-hmm. what I was going to do, but I knew that they weren't going to let me mm-hmm. suffer on my own. So I felt, no. I felt like we had the tools to tackle what was going to come. I feel for your mum so much in that situation. Um, obviously, Marley's a lot longer, younger than you, um, but that we've had her in an induced coma plenty of times when she's had a prolonged status epileptic seizure, you know, intubated, ventilated, all yeah. of those things. And you go through every time she's in a situation like that, she's in a life-threatening situation. And once she starts a status epileptic seizure, we don't know whether she's ever going to come out of it. And if she does, what that will look like. So... You go through yeah, the phase my, of going, yeah. I, my I, parents, I, not knowing, they, they said my brain looked fine and that, you know, my body function should be fine, but you don't know until they wake up. No. So there's all that not knowing. And the, the added layer for my parents was that the police had incorrectly ruled it as a suicide. So they spent a whole week not no No one asked me. No one checked in with me. The accident oh, was about so one sorry. in the morning. I had no it was idea. About one in the morning at a at a university village, so I can understand. Like I don't really understand how they got to that conclusion. I think there's an element of um, being a bit lazy, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, but no one asked me. No one. They didn't think. Let's wait till she wakes up and get her yeah. side of the story. Yeah. And obviously, I had to go through a lot of trauma psych um, and. 
psychology, um, they all ruled that I was fine and that was not a factor moving forward. But for my parents to spend that week just not knowing. And my dad said when I wo- his greatest fear was that when I woke up, I would say, shit, it didn't mm. work. Mm. And when I woke up and I had no memory and I had no idea, he said it was a really big relief. Yep. And speaking of amazing people, one of the girls I was doing social work with at uni, I'd known her three weeks and she came into the hospital with a, um, a gift package for my parents with just like food and a blanket and mm-hmm. a toy for me. And she just said, I want you to know that, you know, in the three weeks I've known Mon, she was always really happy and positive and a lovely person. And mum mm-hmm. said that feedback really reassured her that yep. it was, because, you know, my parents know me, but I'd also just, I'd spent a year and I was at uni in Melbourne. So for a parent and not being involved yep. every day, suddenly, what don't I know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was that. And, you know, all my friends, the whole university were told it was a suicide. So a lot of friends were just like, oh, that's too scary. You're going to run away. Um, and if it had been mental health related, that's the worst time to run away from yeah, someone. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. That had there. it actually been a suicide attempt, then it was so important to get the right support around you. And you can understand yeah. The health professionals can, you know, making sure you had that support available when you came out of the coma should that have been what you needed. But I can't believe that people were told that it was a suicide attempt. Yeah. That's just, I just can't imagine how hard that must have been for your family. And I'm yeah. so sorry. And people would yeah, always so. be left with that lingering question mark too. Like it's mm, not going to exactly. matter what and you say. That's influenced your future now. Exactly. And it's something that's on my um, hospital records it's like on the first page. And if you read through the record, which is, you know, about I've contributed greatly to deforestation. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there's so many psychology analyses and things that we've done since that all say that is Mm. not a factor. Mm. Um, I have to be more aware that depression is more likely in my future because I'm someone with a disability. Mm -hmm. So we are very conscious of my mental health, but no one reads through the file. They just look at the first page and it's just very, you know, even now when I do go to doctor's appointments, it's almost like it's expected that because you have a disability, you must be in some way depressed. Mm. And it's always something that sort of gets brought up. Oh, how, like, how are you coping? Mm. And, you know, are you happy? And it's just said in a way that there's just this expectation and it can be, it can be a bit of a trigger for me because I just spent so many weeks in hospital being like, I'm I'm okay how do Mm. I get this across Mm. I had to wear an alert bracelet like a suicide alert bracelet and it was just branded with something that I felt no one was listening to me about and it was just something where I thought the best way to show everyone that I am and I will be okay is by what I do next yep and not that not that there's any shame or no issue at all with having mental health or um, depression. It was just that I didn't, I really felt the stigma that Mm. people with Mm. mental health must feel because it's a really difficult, frustrating conversation. And you just feel like you're thrown into this box Mm. and you're just labeled. And it's like, hold on, I'm an individual. Listen Mm. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Depression isn't the same for every single person. And 
I tell you now, a coma definitely doesn't cure depression. So no, it, I'm sure that it does not. <laughs> not yeah, as losing it was, him, I would imagine. <laughs> exa- yeah, exactly. It was sort of like, well, if I was depressed, I would be now because yeah. <laughs> losing a limb is not something you sign up for for fun. Not ideal. <laughs> really interesting insight um, into that and into the stigma. And mm. I think a lot of my friends really struggled with how to approach me, mm. and a lot of them just decided not to. Mm. So that was really frustrating and I do while being an athlete I've done a lot of work with Lifeline to try to to open up that discussion more because it needs to be more acceptable and we need to be able to have that discussion in a way where you're not branded or labeled yeah but you're treated as an individual who needs same way you go to a doctor you need to go to a psychologist Mm. our brain is something worth investing in yeah yeah um we've had this discussion um with our sons who are both neurodiverse and we've used medication in different ways to support that at different times um and they also have diabetes and so we've said you know the adhd medication that we use to sort of rebalance the chemical imbalance in their brain to help them be able to concentrate or the medication that we help to reduce their anxiety which such as big part of the autism spectrum disorder is no different to the insulin that we use Mm. to stabilize their blood glucose levels and I think because we've had that normalized with them from such a young age they don't think about it any differently but very few kids have to interact with mental health in that way so thank you I really just hope health professionals listening to this episode can hear you speak about that stigma and the way that you felt with the way that language and body language and everything was used towards you because if someone is in a mental health crisis that can't be the best way to reach and support yeah and you know there were a few health professionals who would see that suicide comment on like the first page of my um record and just be like oh that explains everything it's like no no it doesn't and even if even if it had been a suicide attempt it still would not explain everything it's not something you can just go oh sweet we've got this sorted now Mm -hmm. it's usually it's things with like mental health they're ripple effects they come Mm -hmm. from so many different experiences and triggers and things and it's never just a one size fits all and that's I'd love to see that changed in the yeah absolutely profession as well wonderful so when you had um blood products was that to do with the laceration that you had on your neck is that where you had the blood loss from yeah so when I landed so I landed on a glass roof right so lacerations to my neck all on all over my chest um my foot which to paint a beautiful picture it looked like a bomb had gone off in the middle of my foot so huge blood loss there as well so I did require um blood transfusions Mm -hmm. and growing up my school in Canberra St Clair's um my health class we used to go and donate blood quite Mm, regularly that's amazing yeah so I'd, I'd grown up always every three months going in and donating blood. Mm-hmm. And when my brother said, oh, you had a um, blood transfusion, I was like, oh, I feel like I deserve a bit of it back, to be honest. <laughs> I didn't. I, I felt really um, incredibly grateful that someone else yeah. out there had donated blood. And yeah. I also felt like this is why I do it, because yeah. people need, need it. it. And yeah. 
And it gives you a different perspective when you use it yourself or someone in your family uses it. You understand what your donation has then gone on to mean to another family. And what's interesting is growing up, there was a girl in our grade at school whose father sadly died in a, it was a cycling accident Mm -hmm. and her family in our school became big supporters of organ donation. So we would always go and do the, um, there was a walking Canberra every year to raise awareness and money. So I'm a registered organ donor mm-hmm. and my dad is fully supportive because this was back when your next to kin would have final say. Um, and my mum, who is Catholic, fully supports organ donation, but there were a few things where, you know, with her religion, she was like, well, oh. when I think, because I wanted, I was trying to push her to sign up as well. And she's like, oh, but what about, what about this, that? And I'm like, you can choose what you yeah. want to donate. Yeah. Yeah, I keep your eyes mm. or in that sort of thing. Mm. And when I had my accident, I think it really dawned on her that we wouldn't have turned down anything. If I needed a transplant yeah. of any sort, mm. that would have been, you wouldn't turn it down. So I think it kind of registered, well, you've got to be willing mm. to be able to, you know, if the worst were to happen, would you donate your organs? Because mm. if you're going to be willing to take them when you need them, yeah, absolutely. Got to think about the other, mm-hmm. the flip side. So, yeah. um, and I, yeah. I have asked my dad that question. I said, if I had died, would you have donated my organs? He's like, absolutely. It's what you yeah. wanted. We yeah. would have done that. Mm-hmm. And that's such a big transition to, I think, from you being their little girl and their daughter to yeah. being a woman that was able to make choices about her own body that they had to respect in that yeah. moment. You know, it would have just yeah made them feel like you grew up so much in that time, even though you mm. were so dependent on them. It must have been an interesting yeah. time, yeah, to redefine that relationship. Um, yeah. We've touched on it before, but I really feel for your parents seeing you in that coma and not knowing what the outcome would be because when Marley's in a situation like that, you know, we just hope that she's going to survive. That's the first yeah. step. And then you don't know if she does survive, if she is going to wake up, be able to see, be able to hear, um, be able to walk or have any of her final gross motor skills impacted. And, um, yeah, we've spoken before, but she has been mixed use in a wheelchair plenty of times um, when her ataxia has been really significant from her autoimmune encephalitis, when the inflammation is significant on her brain and when she's recovering from seizures. Um, but there was a period where she did recover from a seizure, but she didn't recognise us as her parents. And she didn't interact with us in any way differently to what she did with the doctors or the nurses. And it's amazing how you kind of, you know, make a pact with the universe. You kind of like, as long as she makes it through the night, that's okay. And then it's, I want her to make it through the next day, but it would be really great if she could wake up and your wishes just get slowly, slowly, slowly bigger. But as a parent, if someone could have said to me in those situations, you know, she will be able to survive, but she'll never walk again. Will you take that option? I would have been like, absolutely. Yeah. There is, you know. Yes. Losing losing my foot. So the worst injury was the the laceration to the neck because mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't um, go near the windpipe, which was lucky, but I was full, it was full of glass. So when they were removing the glass, the, there was a high chance they were going to nick the artery and I would have bled out. Mm. So dad says that that was, he refers to it as signing my life away to give them permission to do whatever it would take. And clearly I'm here just as loud and 
chatterboxy as normal, so they mm. did a great job. Yeah. Um, but the foot was, you know, people think, oh, that must have been the worst thing, and you know, it wasn't. And there's all these other decisions that they had to mm. they had to make. And it's interesting when I've talked to my family about how they coped, because my dad said my mum would always talk to me when I was in the coma. She would come in and talk to me as though I could hear her. That he said yeah. that just wasn't that just wasn't him. He yep. he knew I wasn't, you know going to be out of here and so he was there but mm. didn't have that same response and my brother it was his birthday while I was in the coma <laughs> so oh, you can only imagine mate. he was um having a secret hope that I might wake up on his birthday yeah um maybe not though, like that... maybe he just didn't want you to steal his thunder like maybe he just wanted a day well, to be just for him. <laughs> my birthday is two weeks after his and it right. wasn't until my birthday that I went oh shit Christopher I forgot <laughs> your birthday <laughs> present is it so I was the um you know I had the worst sister of the year award that year but he told me during that week he just had at one point he just had to go to the gym and see he just wanted to see if he could break the treadmill and just run as fast as he could because we're a bit of we're a sporty family and Mm. for him that was how he needed to get that Mm. get those emotions out and he also went um, I've always loved soft toys and he went and bought me this um, big bunny, big teddy yeah. bunny. And um, his girlfriend at the time told me, he said, he went to shop after shop and was so stubborn about having to find the perfect toy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's just these little ways in which, yeah. like, you know, I've just got to do this one thing right because mm. all this other stuff is going wrong. Yeah. So, mm. and I got to sleep through it all. So it's, yes. um, it's always an interesting anniversary it comes in two parts and the first yeah, sure. one is um you know acknowledging the day that it happened and calling my parents to tell them I'm not near any balconies and I'm, still, I'm all okay <laughs> it's been enough that years that you can make that joke now <laughs> I can make that joke with my dad with my mom not so much um <laughs> but it is yeah it's that acknowledgement for them and then it's the day that I woke up that's when my journey starts and it still blows my mind that I spent an entire week of my life asleep you know it's it's crazy to think and the you know what they went through initially after the accident I was very self-absorbed and you have to be to get through something like that you've got to be entirely focused on yourself and I remember arguing with mum one night and saying that, you know, she didn't understand because she got to leave the hospital at night and I never get to leave and I'm, I'm here all the time. And, you know, she just went quiet. And in that moment, I realised I'm going to win every argument for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I don't want to. No. And it was a horrible thing to say to her, but sometimes we say the worst things to the people we're closest with. Oh, and um, your brain was recovering as well from being in a coma. And, and so you don't got, have that risk perception and understanding of emotion in the same way. And she never had a minute. She never had a minute where she wasn't worried about me. And she no. never will again. No, she thing. won't. <laughs> but there was a moment when I left hospital, um, I moved back to Canberra for a few months um, just to get fully as mobile as I could before I went back to Melbourne Mm. and mum would call me three or four times a day and I would get because she lived about two hours outside of Canberra at that point and it drove me insane 
because I was like, mom, I'm still on the couch. I'm still yeah. watching TV. Nothing has yeah. changed. Yeah. But the moment that I realized she spent an entire week of her life thinking her daughter might not wake up. Yeah, absolutely. And as soon as I started picking up the phone and calling her, that clinginess mm. sort of subsided. And I just realized as shit as it was for me, mm. um, and I'd been, at this point, I'd been studying social work. So I had a tendency to get overly involved in other people's problems. So it was sort of like, oh, now I'm the one who gets all the attention and yeah, it's all about yeah, me. Sure. Yeah. And as soon as I started to think about what my parents and my brother had been through, you know, it really, it hit me. And I think that's where our relationship started to mend a bit because, you, you know, I started to be more aware. And I said to my parents, I said, I can, un- I can try to sympathize as much as I can about what you went through, but I have a feeling that um, the day, if and when I have children, I will probably call them up and go, I am so sorry. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I think until you are a parent and you have that responsibility of another life, mm. you know, I think it's going to hit me again about what they went through. Yeah. And so, yeah, it will probably you know, be it'll, I can yeah. try to understand as much as I can now, but I think when, if and when I have children, there'll be another way where I'll be like, oh my God, how did you handle this? Yeah, absolutely. So how did you jump from furniture design to social work? Because I had assumed when I read your story that social work was something you'd gone on to study after your, you had your accident. Mm. But Yeah, so I, no. I did furniture design at St. Clair's in Canberra and I loved it right. and I loved that it was something a bit different and yeah, I really wanted to, I didn't want to feel stuck in a lecture theatre. I like doing practical things. So when yeah. I applied for that course at RMIT in Melbourne, they only mm-hmm. accepted one in five. So when I was accepted, I felt right. this is something I need to do. But my first year there, as much as I love it, I really like being in a workshop where I can be in complete control of the entire design process. And at 19, unless I had my own workshop, um, yeah, sure. that wasn't going to be what my career would be. It would be sort of, I'd either be designing or I would be in a furniture store manufacturing the same piece again and again, or things mm-hmm. are going very um, 3D printing. They're, they're going online a lot more and I'm terrible mm-hmm. with computers. So yeah, I sort sure. of realized it wasn't as fun and different as it was having yeah. a career was going to be um quite difficult and I missed the academic side of things I did miss really studying and writing essays and I'd had my gap year which had been my chance to turn my brain off and I kind of wanted to use it again so yeah I'd grown up volunteering with St Vincent de Paul and growing up in a Catholic family was always um volunteering with charities so I wanted to my brother was is a social worker as well so I felt that was the best fit and I was accepted into that course at RMIT the year of my accident. So I just started and a lot of people asked me, oh, did you become a social worker because of your accident? And yeah, I think the way that I had read your story, yeah. that's just the way that it had sounded when it was written. I met yeah. a lot of terrible social workers through my journey. Um, having, mm. I, I had to stop my degree because we couldn't manage placement. It's a thousand hours placement. I couldn't manage it with training yeah. and my disability. So I sure. transferred into business. Um, 
but it wasn't it wasn't at all about you know my experience I had hoped that being a client, being a social client could count as my prac work because I feel like <laughs> that would be, that could be okay. But it wasn't about trying to right the wrongs that I'd seen in the industry. It was just that I've always had that passion of wanting to help people and make yeah. people's experience a little bit better than what it was the day before. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I do miss the social work and when I moved up to um, to Brisbane for training, the, I found that Melbourne is very progressive and very open-minded, whereas, and mm-hmm. I, I did find Queensland wasn't quite on the same page, so it felt a little mm-hmm. bit more stagnant, I guess. So right. moving into business, I've just finished my business degree. It only took nine years to get one degree. Congratulations. Yay. That's awesome. Um You've done a lot in that nine years. I lost, I lost a leg. You've lived a bigger life in that nine years than most yeah. people live at all. So give yourself a break. So I do. I do miss. That's awesome, though. Congratulations. Thank you. I do miss the social work stuff, but a lot of the way I thought about it was that business and I did marketing. That's social work is advocacy. Marketing is advocacy with mm. money. So mm. I do yeah. align in terms of um, where I work. I align myself with that core I guess value of I just want to help people and a lot of my experience from losing my leg and getting into parasport also being diagnosed with endometriosis there's a lot I've learned and a lot that needs fixing so that's where I sort of yeah coming back into swimming I was worried because swimming as a kid it felt very selfish everything was about Mm. me and racing and we had to buy certain foods we couldn't go on holidays at certain times and I was worried that that would happen again and I thought as a para-athlete if I do this properly I'm going to be able to connect with people in a way that I am I don't like using the word inspiring because that's not my goal and I don't want to use Mm. my you know my core purpose is not to be a product of inspiration because I have a disability People with disabilities are much more than that. But I knew that sport for people with a disability is an area that needs a lot more attention. And I could be, mm. I could be a small part of that, that movement and that mm. change. Yeah, well, I'm very grateful. You saw Marley's eyes light up before <laughs> when she came and had a little chat to you and she knew a little bit about your story and just being able to compare scars with you just there, yeah. just the look on her face when she could show you her scar and you said, oh, look, I've got scars too. And you can't underestimate the impact that has on a little and person. And it's just seeing whose body seeing yourself reflected yeah, looks in. And feels, yeah, and works differently to some of her peers. Yeah. So, you know, to see that and then to talk about your Olympic career and that kind of stuff, like that has such a big impact. Yeah, so thank you so much for giving her that. Very, that was a really special We're gift. very proud <laughs> to be Paralympians because like over the history the Paralympic movement and the Olympic movement are quite separate and we get very, we know I'm very proud to be a Paralympian and it's, it's not Paralympian, Paralympian because we've got a different, we've got our own history, our own symbol. We have a different symbol to the Olympic rings. We have our own um, sponsors. Like everything is very different. If I rock up to the Paralympic games and compete, and if I have a tattoo of the Olympic rings on me, I will be disqualified because wow. it's, it's a different brand and that brand doesn't have sponsorship rights. 
So it's it's think of wow. think of Nike and Adidas or yeah, yeah, right. AFL and NRL. You wouldn't call an NRL player yeah. an AFL player. You get in a lot of trouble. No, you wouldn't. And that's really important. Yeah, Thank so there you is for a big... that because I have made the mistake of putting the O in there. Yeah, and, and you very clearly corrected me and thank you for doing that because if you you know once you know better you do better exactly and it's all about education because like I said I've never watched a Paralympic Games until this year because it wasn't Mm -hmm. shown to me and one of the big things about it is when people say oh Monique's an Olympian watch the Olympics you're not going to see me Mm. because Mm. I, I used to I used to always get sick in inverted commas when the Olympics were on so I could stay home and watch them and not go to school. (laughs) And then they have the closing ceremony. You turn the TV off and that's it. But Mm -hmm. in the background, two weeks later, the Paralympics are on. Back then they were on a different channel and people just don't tune in because all you hear is Olympics, Olympics, Olympics. And I think it's the same with the AFL and NRL women's. You know, Mm. you've got to remember they have a different season that runs at the same time and you've got to be aware of that so that you can tune in and watch them so that they get the attention Mm -hmm. they deserve so that they can get the sponsorships and the opportunities and you know for paras we are getting there but as someone who came in having been shown the olympics my first national championships which is a televised event i walked out for my first final and said we're going to be on tv this is so exciting and the girl behind me who was a paralympic gold medalist that i did not know (laughs) said oh we race in the ad breaks and no i was gutted and we still i'm gutted a lot of our races still don't make it to make it to air or they my 400 freestyle is always cut short and it's always shown at the end of the broadcast so like at 11 o'clock at night and it's incredibly frustrating and it really taps into that idea we're worth less our sense of worth is compromised yeah. and you know so that's why it is important to acknowledge us as as parallel mm-hmm. it's the same as acknowledging people yeah. with disabilities it is harder for us and mm-hmm. we need it will mm-hmm. understand that you can't leave your trolleys in disability parks because you make it you make society completely inaccessible for us and yeah you know you don't it can be hard to understand that impact when you don't have a disability but it's about taking that time to go hold on these bigger parks and these striped areas are probably here for a reason and I probably need to Mm. go put my trolley back in the trolley bay (laughs) how about we don't use disability toilets if you don't have a disability as well the amount of times that I have no Part of Marley's disability is that she has trouble with her bladder control and so she can't hold on. And I've got a service dog mm. and I've got a child with a disability who needs additional assistance in a disability-friendly bathroom to be able to toilet and all of those things. And you'll see, you know, people coming out that have been in there doing their makeup together or oh. something and you're like, you just have no idea yep. just had not just inconvenient but how disrespectful that exactly, is. Exactly, exactly. And I've always... Um, pulled people up on it and you know I was at an event recently and someone's like oh but the line for the other one's so long and I'm like and you've got two legs go stand in yeah like I don't yeah absolutely I don't care it is not just no when I had surgery on my amputated leg because I had a lot of metal still in the bone and we we took it out Mm -hmm. so when it is my amputated leg 
um, that causes me to use my wheelchair, I have my other leg. So the amount of times if we get to stairs, I can hop out, pull my chair up and get back in. That's not a luxury that a lot of other people with disability have. And I've had to use, I've gone to the bathroom before and the disability one was occupied. And so I had to leave my wheelchair outside the cubicle, hop in, pray that no one was going to take it and hop back out. And people were like, what are you doing? And I was like, there's someone without a disability using the disability toilet. Yeah, like, in the bathroom. And I have yeah. that opportunity to use my other leg, but not everyone, other people will either have to go home because they can't get out of their um out of their car mm. because there's no room when you don't have a disability spot or yep. what's the other option when you really need to go to the toilet it's it's a reality yeah, that we have to face and mm. Mm. next year I'm getting surgery on my good leg so I will be confined in my wheelchair without any other option and that you know it's another learning curve for me because you know in some instances I've always had that escape route I guess and mm. it's like mm. That's why I've become quite a fierce advocate because I've experienced a certain type of disability and amputation with the opportunity of prosthetics is very different to paralysis and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But I've realised how inaccessible the world is for me as someone with quite a minor level disability. And then you go, holy mm. crap, like... <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Everyone else how do other people navigate I it? I just really want to put people in um I work for a group called Sporting Wheelies and we take disability sport out to schools and corporate um environments because we literally will bring 30 wheelchairs and put people in them and we play wheelchair basketball yeah. and that sort of thing but as soon as you turn around and say how would you go to the bathroom in this chair how would yeah, you get in and yeah. out of a car in this chair and I really want all the um MPs to have to use a wheelchair on well, maybe not on International Day for people with a disability because we don't want them to take up our spots. But just to, <laughs> just to get that, have to use one around the office yeah. and just have to realise, oh, not that, mm. not that a person can't adapt. Our ability to adapt is unbelievable. But just to have yeah. that understanding and respect of, wow, mm. this world is not made for people in a wheelchair we need to do more about this and it mm -hmm. be more even just making sure that things are stacked in aisles mm. in shops that allow enough access room for you to be able to get in and yep. out and turn around um obviously I'm not in a wheelchair but having propelled Marley in one with a service dog alongside there is just so many parts of the world that just aren't accessible yep. to us yep. um and sometimes she has got it's like it's like a big converted stroller mm. she has got because she's quite big and heavy um, compared to a normal stroller. And I've had a lady when I was coming out of a disability toilet with her walk up to Marley um, and say, oh, what are you doing in there? You're such a big girl now. You shouldn't be in a pram like that. Your poor mum shouldn't have to push you around. And Marley was like, oh, but, but these are my special wheels. And, you know, we always use language yeah, like yeah. that. So it's exciting and inclusive. Mm. And, you know, we let her choose the most ridiculous hot pink wheelchair yeah. anyone has ever seen. And we could have done pink and black to make the trimming a bit mm. nice. It is all revolting hot pink. Like you're not going to miss this kid anywhere. And we've always really helped her to embrace that with really positive yeah. and exciting language. And, you know, she was, I was ready 
to punch the woman. The other times I was I just so cranky to take my leg off and give someone a bit of a yeah, <laughs> knock in the head. One of those moments. But I couldn't, I just left it because I didn't feel like I could advocate for Marley and raise that awareness in a way that would be positive yeah. to my four-year-old child at the yeah, time. And it's, because what she would have seen was me being upset and then, you know, yeah. all of those things. But it's one of those things that keeps you up at night time. And that was something that I saw happen. Once, you know, we've got three kids with different disabilities, while they're out navigating the world, I can't change the world around yes, them. All yeah. I can do is give them the best belief in themselves and the best resources I can give them to be able to navigate it. And everything else is up to the people around them. And it's them. So, so frustrating. I've had um, where I swim, the amount of people who park in the striped area next to the disability park. And, you know, it, when I see it, it's just like, oh, do I have the energy for this right now? Because it just triggers something mm. in you. And I brought yeah, it up. Absolutely. There was such a sense of entitlement there, there was a mum parked in there and the car was still running and I said excuse me you really can't park there um and mm. she's like oh I'm not parked and I was like well you are and this area isn't it says no parking and she's like can you just get off your high horse like disability <laughs> is not the high horse I wanted thank you very much <laughs> like what high horse oh wow what oh my goodness and oh it was I hope she's listening. Oh, and I've had, I've, you know, I saw a, it was a mum because she had a daughter with a lever trolley in that that area next to the park as well. And I said, oh, please, you really can't do this. She's like, oh, I didn't know. And it's that defensiveness. And it's like mm. I always straight away, whenever I see someone parked without a permit, I always benefit of the doubt straight up. Excuse me, mm -hmm. this is a disability park. Do you have a permit? And when they say, no, what? Mm that's when I'll start attacking because I always yeah, yeah. assume yeah. straight up, you just ask the question yeah. and mm. it's the defensiveness that really annoys me. Just say, I'm sorry mm. and get out of the park mm. or I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Move your trolley. Mm. It's because they just start to argue with you. And it's like, this isn't an argument you're yeah. going to win. And no, I just no. want to educate you. So you don't, if someone with a wheelchair mm. comes along, you've ruined this park for them. Like, yeah, and they're like, oh, but I've got kids. And it's like, oh, well, congratulations. That was a choice. My Fabulous. disability wasn't a choice. Like, no, I had parents say, oh, I'm parked here because my kid's coming out in a second. And I'm like, if you're that worried about their safety, walking from the front of a sports center to the car, park your car, mm. use your two legs, and go collect them. Mm. I understand that safety yep, for kids is serious. Mm. But accessibility for people it's with disability is as well and if you've got two legs or a working body park your car go walk in and collect your child absolutely and if people take nothing else out of this episode yeah, exactly. take that. and there's a there's um, a great so, there's a great app called snap send solve and it's really helped especially my relationship because when i'm with my partner and i see someone parked illegally i get very angry and he's like oh dear she's yeah. going to be in a mood here we go and this this app, it's connected to the city council and you take a photo of the park, like the car illegally parked, yeah. send it in, they will send a council member out to ticket them. So that is brilliant. So is that in Brisbane specifically? Um, I believe it is, is national. It other places I was going to check, well? but snap, send, solve. 
Awesome. We'll pop a link to that in the show and notes just means and any other information that we can I find. I see someone and I actually get excited because I'm like, woohoo, they're getting a ticket and I can send it off. I can't. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to ruin my day anymore. As <laughs> soon as we get off this episode, I'm downloading that app to my it's phone. That's the first thing that I'm doing. And this episode is not sponsored by that. I'm just really excited by that. <laughs> um, so let's do a little surgery comparison because we do have quite a few things in common that mm-hmm. I have noticed since being on this podcast. So um, I was at Earl Page College at the University of New England for four years and I was one of the um, resident fellows, we called them at the time, um, for three of those years and then a senior resident fellow. So looked after people at university colleges and I could just, yeah... I've also had my drink spiked and had an experience of it being my first drink of the night, mm-hmm. getting to a pub and waking up at quarter past six the next morning in the pitch black dark and having no idea where I yeah. was. And I was in the bathrooms of the bar that had been closed down and locked and everybody had gone home. So it took me a long time to realise where I was or what had happened and yeah. i yeah, you know, my friends thought I'd gone home with my partner at the time. My partner thought I'd gone home with my friends. Quite soon afterwards, a bit of an alarm was raised because nobody knew where I was. Yeah. Um, so I really feel for you and understand that experience yeah. of having and no memory. I don't think I mentioned it, all. but that's what the doctors, they didn't do any blood alcohol or drug testing when I arrived because I was in such a critical condition. But we, sure. they strongly assumed my drink was spiked with the, yeah, with right. the eight hours of blacked out memory just nothing, just nothing. Yep. and I had a similar experience on my gap year where we think my drink was spiked and I remember calling my dad and just saying you know apparently I've been throwing up in the bathroom and I passed out and he's like if you don't remember like throwing up is a really violent experience for your body mm-hmm. and he's like if you don't even have flashes of memory that's something stronger mm-hmm. than alcohol and it's quite Absolutely. concerning that we were told going overseas what's your passport what's your passport but the, the thing you need to be watching is your drink because it is drinks. A, yeah. a scary, scarily common experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I certainly grew up in a culture of never leave your drink unattended. And we would, it was a drink spiking was a huge thing when I was at uni. And that would have been, you know, a what, probably 10 years before you were at uni. So um, even now, I can't leave a glass of wine on a table at a restaurant or something without getting a bit twitchy, taking two steps away because I'm just yeah. You know, and just, that was so ingrained. Something that I struggled wow. with not remembering the accident was how do I learn from this? If I don't know what happened, how yeah. do I learn from it? And I made it very clear to my friends I didn't want to know anything about the night because I mm. wasn't in control of myself. I have no memory, yeah, so sure. I've got to believe that that wasn't me and it was really difficult to know, like, do I just never drink again? How do I learn from this so it doesn't happen again? And I do drink. Um, I've also got to make sure that that accident doesn't take all the fun out of my life and I don't of course. want to hold yeah. me back. But it was about, mm. all right, I need to be pay more attention to my drinks. And, mm. you know, in the years since, I remember someone at a club was like, I'll go buy you a drink. And I was like, I'll come with you. They're like, oh, you don't have to. And he yeah. was being very... There were no red flags, but I was like, no, 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 I'm going to come with you because I'm, yep, yep. At the least I can do is just be a little bit more mm. vigilant. And yep. it was just about knowing, not knowing about what happened that night. It was, it was about deciding what, what can I control moving forward and being focused on yep, what sorry. happened and going down any court avenues wasn't going to bring my leg back. 
So it was about what can I control moving forward, even if it doesn't feel like very much. And focusing on that is, I think, what saw me just get a, a little bit more smarter about going out and um, drinking and you know, you're not invincible and you've got to be careful and you've got to make sure you've got good friends around you. And, you know, it also saw me just focus more on what made me happy, which was swimming and getting up at five o'clock in the morning for some reason. And saw me, <laughs> saw me get to the Paralympics. So I think it was focusing on what you yeah. can control is always, always Mm -hmm. So how did you feel when you were standing there having that silver medal put on in Rio? I was um I was quite sick. I'd gotten quite run down and had a terrible cold, which was textbook me growing up. Whenever I had a big competition, I'd get my nerves would cause me to get sick. So yeah. I really had to focus on the fact that one feeling unwell wasn't going to erase all the training I'd done, not just after the accident, but before mm -hmm. it as well. And, you know, I'd been through worse, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. My parents were in their stands and I told them that I wasn't going to look for them, like when we get announced and walk out before the race, because day to day, I'm quite accepting about what, what happened. But whenever I come to a massive competition, it just triggers the waterworks. And what was challenging at the games was, I was living out my childhood dream of going to a games, but I was at a Paralympics because I'd lost my leg. So it was, yeah. you know, I was happy, but I was also, you could not not acknowledge the trauma. And it was only, yeah, you can't. it was 900 days since the accident. So getting through that race was probably more mentally challenging than physically. And when mm -hmm. I got that medal, when I stepped forward, I was so shaky and I felt like my legs just were jelly. And I was actually really worried that I was going to get this big snot bubble because there were all these photographers <laughs> taking photos. And I was, as soon as I finished the race, it was like, okay, I'm allowed to be sick now. And yeah, I've just sure. been blocking it out. And I just runny nose, I'd lost my voice. Um, and I just had this Fear that I was going to this big snot bubble and that was going to be my Paralympic photo. <laughs> um, and I was just, I saw my parents right before I stepped up to get the medal and it was just tears and crying. And the girl who got third, a French girl, she'd won at the games beforehand and she was overwhelmed with getting bronze. So it was a really special podium because a lot of the time you can be a bit like, oh, I wish I'd got gold or I wish I'd got this. Yeah. You're all very... Yeah very content and very proud with where we had landed on the podium and I felt this moment of just pure independence of like I did this I did it yeah and yeah you know, I'd been the one who was driving myself to and from training living in Melbourne so there'd been a lot of independence in those last few years that I hadn't had as a kid because you rely on your parents so much and that moment was very quickly replaced by my family, the support, like yeah. this moment yeah. of like, I did this and it was like, but I couldn't have done it without my family, my psych, my physio, my coach, um, mm. everyone. And it was just this, I think there was this sigh of relief that I was going to be okay because mm. it was probably the moment I really let go of the trauma of the accident. And wow. it was my way, swimming is my language. And it was my way of saying to my parents, mm -hmm. I'm going to be okay. If I can do this, mm -hmm. I'm going to be fine. Yep. 
with whatever I want to do mm. so it it felt yeah like a moment where we could really just let go of the trauma and that accident is never going to be a happy memory but it's not no. something that we can leave it in the past it's not mm. something yep. we have to drag drag with us anymore so it was a very mm-hmm. very powerful moment and when we did you do a lap around the pool after you get your medal and when we stopped in front of the media section which was where my parents were um, I thought if the gold medalist or lady if she walks up and gives her family a hug I'll do the same but this was her third gold medal so she was sort of like oh I'm used to this and we were just about to walk <laughs> off when I hear my stepmom go get your ass up here and I'm not, I'm not a runner, but I've never run faster. And um, the girls very patiently waited for me. And I gave a, such an Aussie. Yeah, thing gave to them all say. a gave them all a hug. And you know, my stepmom Kathy, she's her first husband um, is a gold medalist Paralympian himself, and they were married oh, wow. thirty years. And it was in the first few years of their marriage that he had his accident and became a paraplegic. So she she was so calm throughout everything with my with my accident and when the doctors told us that um they'd amputated my leg she was like oh we got another Paralympian in the family so you know it was that was sort of the gateway into that world and um Michael the Paralympian he was a huge he taught me how to use my wheelchair and came with me when we had the wheelchair fitted because he was like you don't need this you don't need that you're not going to be in your chair 24 seven. So you don't need handles. You can push it yourself. Um, he was a social worker I needed really. Yeah. 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 We are mm. one of those big happy families of everyone. So it was very lucky to have that um, perspective. And, you know, Kathy was just like, when I moved back to Canberra as part of my recovery, dad said, I'm not the one who's going to let you move back to Melbourne. You've got to prove it to Kathy she knows Mm. she knows what Mm. it's like to live Mm. with a disability and she will know whether Mm -hmm. you're ready to go or not so you've got to cook dinner you've got to clean up you know Mm. and it wasn't tough love it was realistically going you have the ability to do xyz don't waste it and Mm. I hate comparing myself saying oh I'm better off because some of my biggest role models are people who are permanently in wheelchairs and it's not it's not about being better off or worse off it's about adapting to your life and adapting to your circumstances and that looks Mm -hmm. different for everybody and Mm -hmm. I my experience of losing my leg at 19 is very different to my teammates experience of losing her leg when she was three and yeah you know it's all it's all very different but it was about going this is my body let's push it to see what my body can do. And it doesn't have to be a competition against anyone else. And I, I compete best when I don't worry about other people. And I just focus on using swimming your own race, swimming my own race, yeah. racing to the best of my ability. And yeah, I, I woke up for a reason. And I think that reason is to make the most of what my body can do. And mm-hmm. I enjoy still pushing those boundaries to find out just what it can do. <laughs> But your body did decide to throw you just one more curveball just to keep you on your toes. 
Um, so I know endometriosis. I know how chronic and debilitating and awful and horrible it can be. Um, I had my 15th lot of surgery for my endometriosis, which was a hysterectomy at the age of 34. Obviously, hysterectomy isn't going to fix endometriosis, but it did help alleviate my adenomyosis that I have alongside it. Um, I'm really interested to find out your perspective of the different ways that medical professionals dealt with your accident and being an amputee and all the rehab that you need that goes along with that and the pain that goes along with that as opposed to the way that they dealt with you saying that you had initial pelvic pain or concerns about you know reproductive health periods whatever it was wherever you started your endometriosis journey um, having experienced two very different types yeah how, what was your experience of those two different things so with my leg, no one ever questions my pain. I, I get phantom pain. Um, it is quite manageable now being seven years post-accident. Um, but if someone knocks my leg, like when we're training in the water, I don't wear the prosthetic, you know, it's, I'll, I'll scream. The pain, phantom pain is just next level. But no one ever questions it. If there's anything you know, if I need to adjust anything or do something different because of my prosthetic, no one can help me more. As soon as it's something mm. to do with your uterus, oh, that's up for debate. Yeah. And in the sporting yeah, is, world, uh, where we have predominantly male coaches who do not mm. have any lived experience or do not understand or just choose not to, um, I think it comes down to a lack of education on their part. And a, the there is a really poor culture around women's health in, in sport. And for some people, they don't, you know, you don't get your period when you're training at that level. Um, mm -hmm. And that's almost, for me growing up, that almost seemed like the goal to achieve. And because there are people whose periods just work, uh, you know, very in sync and it's very manageable, I think coaches tend to go, well, why can't you be like that? And they don't understand that it is different for every person. And it's my, my pain with endometriosis is always questionable, apparently. And that's what frustrates me. And when I see my psych, you know, they've got to remind me, you know what pain is. You lost a leg. Yeah, you You're in pain. Yeah. Like, it's bad. And, mm. you know, it's taken a while again being a woman in sport it can be quite daunting to go up against a male coach and question mm -hmm. them and fight back and for a long time I didn't and a lot of the I saw 14 doctors before I got diagnosed with endometriosis over oh, five so years sorry. and a lot of them were sport doctors and they're very mm -hmm. concerned with just getting you through your race and there's not much follow-up care or not much this is what we'll do so that you can race, but we need to look into this. Go see, period oh. pain's not normal. Go see a doctor about it. No, still, no. and people don't realise that period pain's not I'm normal. I'm still waiting. I asked our swim coach doctor for a referral to an endometriosis specialist. That was in 2019. Mm -hmm. I'm still waiting for it. And it's just not, you know, accepted as something um to be concerned with in the sense that if you've got shoulder pain, oh, you're straight to the physio. If you need surgery, you are straight. You know, you can call up a, um, a sports doctor or a sports surgeon and, hi, I'm an athlete, bam, 
you'll get yep. in because mm. you know when you're a categorized athlete in that system that's taken very seriously but not with not with endometriosis and we have mm. in 2019 we had 15 female swimmers four of us have endo or no or both and yeah. when I asked the manager I said we have a training ready to go that we've developed with Quendo we've developed with parents and yeah. athletes we need to educate our coaches because our athletes by the time we see the doctor it is we need surgery straight away and we can't go let's mm. wait till after the big competition in two months we have to get it done mm. and it affects or destroys our careers and when I mm said we have this training ready to go and she goes we don't want it to become the next excuse oh my god and it's incredibly frustrating because you're just labeled as an athlete as a female athlete who's too difficult and while athletes without endometriosis sure they might be easier to train it doesn't it'd be the same as saying para athletes are too difficult to train and we're not. And athletes with endometriosis, adenomosis, any kind of women's health, mm. we're not too difficult to train. It's just about learning to train with us, not against us. And I think on the whole, we're trained as men, not women. And mm. I know athletes who, who don't have endo, who don't have adeno, but they have tracked their cycle and they know that on this day of their cycle, it's not worth training. It's better to just mm. stay at home, rest up, and they'll get a much better week mm. the following week. And mm. that's what I want to get out there is you don't need to be getting surgery. You don't need to have endometriosis to take time to learn about how your body responds and yep. works and work with it. If you need a little bit more mm. iron right before your period, you might have a much better training session. If you need to, yeah, absolutely. recovery is part of training. It's not being slack mm. it's not being mm. lazy and if you prioritize mm. when those recovery sessions are as a female athlete you're going to have a much better training record going into a competition and mm. when it comes to I had my first period in two years right before Rio and that was my first endo flare looking back mm. that's what and that's why I got sick because my immune system was high yeah. in the endo I crashed and I yeah. picked up a cold so you know and if we'd known that we would have been able to put in better measures around the jet lag, around the training, and it could have really changed Rio. And it definitely would have changed the four years on the team since Rio have been me just fighting this unknown illness, crying in bathrooms after disappointing races because for some reason the week before the competition, my body fell apart and not knowing what was going on and not getting the mental support and all, all the physical support from this mm. team of experts it's yeah. been infuriating and mm. in in comparison to having a disability you've just got to remind yourself you know what I know what pain is I know what's too much absolutely and yeah yeah I'm sick of these um quotes and ideas that you've got to push through pain because pushing through pain has seen me have eight surgeries in six years it's, mm. it has not helped me mm. at all. Pain is some, is your body saying you need to do something different because this isn't working. Mm. As an athlete, mm. I talk about pushing through the hurt. The hurt is where my mm. muscles are screaming and going, ah, this is, this is difficult, but we're mm. bettering ourselves. That's hurt. 
Mm. Pain is something that mm. stops you dead in your tracks because your body is going, mm. something is wrong. This is an alert. I know it so well. Need, I know it so you well. You need to change. And that's what my that's mm. what my psych taught me. And that's what I use with my coach. Mm. When something is hurting, that's fine. When it's pain, game over. It's time to stop. Yeah, so, so, so important. We'll just round it out by asking if you have just got a final message to give to blood donors in Australia or anyone who's considering making a donation. To whoever donated that week before my accident, thank you. You saved my life. Mm. You did. But it's, it's that, it's that yeah. simple. And unfortunately, I can't donate with my endo and my iron levels and training, but my, my partner is a firefighter and he donates Mm -hmm. He donates plasma as well. So he donates on the dot every time, every time he can. So well, he picks up my slack. Marley could, <laughs> yeah, he should have ducked in to say hello before because Marley could very well have some of his plasma around in her body, but both being in southeast Queensland. He, um, he was working in Mackay for a number of years and it no. was difficult to donate during COVID because they couldn't get the products down to Brisbane. So it's, yep. you think of COVID, you think of um, public holidays, um, like I said, my partner's a firefighter, but he attends more roadside crashes than he does fires. And those people, you need you need blood and don't wait for someone you know to need it or for something to happen to you to realise the importance of it. At the very least, yeah. like my dad says, he used to donate blood at uni because it meant he got it meant he got a free meal. And free feed. <laughs> you get a cookie, <laughs> you get a milkshake, you get a little badge that says you saved a life and if it's just for the free food yeah it doesn't matter yeah, it is just get around it it, it is absolutely life-saving and if you can mm. it's something worth doing it's half an hour of your day and you can walk around knowing yeah. you've done your good deed so please consider it it's literally life-changing for someone out there life-saving life-saving yeah. mm, perfect Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been amazing. I could just talk to you all day. I could we could talk chat. forever. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we need to get a glass of wine at some point. Absolutely. Stage. <laughs> we could talk about. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. This podcast is written and presented by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Australian Paralympic swimmer, Monique Murphy. Marley's dad and my lovely husband, Jeff Fisher, did the audio production for this episode. To make an appointment to donate plasma and other blood products in Australia, please go to www.lifeblood.com.au and we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood Team Tally. A gift of blood product over the Christmas period is the greatest gift that you can give. Um, please send me some donation photos so that I can post them to the Milkshakes for Marley Instagram page. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and share this episode with a friend. We love hearing about where people are listening to the pod and it seems that lots of people this week are downloading and binge listening on their road trips. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Milkshakes for Mali podcast. Please stay safe when travelling over the festive period. Wishing you the most Merry Christmas. And as always, I will leave the final word to Mali herself. 
Thank you for my prize, Mom.